Hi, I'm Gabby Herculano. And I'm Shella Lika. And this is Climate Talk with Gabby and Shella, a weekly podcast in which we talk to an array of fascinating people from all corners of the business and financial world about their solutions for creating a decarbonized planet and a climate habitable for all. Come join us as we push toward a greener future. Today, we're super excited to have Bill Nussie on the program with us. He's the CEO of Freeing Energy and has done a number of things in his life, including something that we find incredibly exciting and very relevant to what we're doing. Bill has had a very impressive career. Over 30 years of experience in the software space, he was CEO of several very successful businesses. In the past two years, Bill spent most of his time researching local solar, a very powerful idea that we can now generate electricity behind the meter at our homes at the point of consumption. That is a theme that is very close to our hearts. We're very excited about that as well. So we cannot wait to talk to Bill about all the research he has done. Let's bring him on. We're very excited to have you on our show today. Thank you so much for making time. One of the first questions that we love to ask is, tell us about your journey. How did you get here? You know, I've been doing startups my entire life. Worked briefly in venture capital. And uh, I kind of stumbled into the whole clean energy thesis. Uh, I had, I'd sold my, I'm a CEO of a company, which we sold to IBM. And I had the great honor of being promoted to run strategy for this iconic American company or global company. And uh, we were looking at the future digitization of several industries. And I was amazed how much the power industry was undigitized. And I started looking at it almost uh, a lot out of personal interest. As I, a million years ago, I got a degree in electrical engineering. So I kind of understood what we were talking about. And, and as I dove deeper, I found a much more interesting opportunity that had nothing to do with IBM, but was the fact, and this is 2016, that solar was going to become cheaper than any other source of electricity generation in human history. And I'm old enough to have been through a couple of massive transformations, disruptions in my career. And I said, this is going to be the biggest one ever. And so I started researching on the nights and weekends and eventually was driving my family and friends to distraction about all these ideas I had. And a friend of mine said, listen, shut up. We're tired of hearing you do something about it. Quit your job and you should write a book. And that way you can call up the smartest people in the world and ask the dumbest questions. And so here we are today. I've interviewed 320 people. I've sat in huts in Africa, the headquarters, of the largest solar company in the world, talking to the founder and climbed to the top of a wind turbine. And it's just been a great fun journey and the book's coming out in the end of this year. And I have developed, I think, a pretty interesting set of thesis where it lives at the intersection of three things I really wanted to find. One is that I, I think that the planet and the environment needs all the help it can get. And um, I wanted to make a difference there, but I also wanted to make a difference in the lives of uh, a billion people that live in energy poverty. And there's an opportunity that's rapidly emerging to address that. And then the last is that to quote Amory Lovins, who is one of my heroes uh, from Rocky Mountain Institute founder, we are facing the largest opportunity in human history. And I have all kinds of fun numbers in my book about just how large it is, but the transition to clean energy checks all those critical boxes. And as an investor and a product geek, I realized that there's a single underlying theme across all three of those boxes, which is why I have to be in this space. 
And that is, there's this little tiny thing called a solar cell and a battery. And you can, you can use it to power a, a, a hut in Africa and make a difference in a child's life who has, who's reading by a kerosene lamp. And you can take a million of those and power a city. And, and so what happens, and, and I'll, uh, and I'll wrap up with this is that we are facing fundamental shift in the economics of energy on planet earth. And we're moving from a, a hundred years of fuel and consumption based economy to one that's more akin to the, what makes your iPhone work, to technology economy. And they are completely different. And this is so much more disruptive than I initially thought because it, not just because solar is cheaper, but solar is a technology and not a fuel. And that's why I think the world's going to look so different in 10 years. We share the conviction, we share the passion, and we share the vision on that power of that local energy, right? And energy being produced at point of consumption is going to change everything. So maybe we, we jump into the nitty gritty. There are a lot of very relevant companies disrupting um, this industry in a big way and bringing to market two concepts that we think are very powerful. And that's the idea of vehicles to grid and virtual power plants. Sometimes when we talk about that, people go like, oh, that's just the concept. We are so far away from commercializing these ideas. So tell us more. I've been lucky enough to take a peek at your book. Cannot wait for you to publish so we get many, many copies. But you talk about that, right? Volkswagen is in 2022, will have all their electric vehicles be bidirectional, right? So ready for that vehicle to greed. Can you tell us more about that? Well, I think most of the world is coming around partially because of climate concerns and partially because of economics to the notion that clean energy is, it's the thing, it's going to happen. But I think most of the world is still resistive of, uh, in the U.S., I liken it to the, the joke about the, the kids at the, or the kids table at Thanksgiving. You know, you have the main Thanksgiving table, which is the large power grid. Uh, and then you got the kids table, which is where all the kids sit at this tiny little table and they're off on the side. So. I think decentralized generation or what I call local energy in the book is the kid's table at Thanksgiving. It's like, oh yeah, sure, honey, sure. We can, we can get you some dessert. Um, yeah, you just, you guys have fun. Don't too, make too much noise. We'll be fine. And I think that's where decentralized generation fits today. And a lot of folks are in for a really rude awakening that this is going to become not only no longer a kid's table, but it's going to become a dominant form of how the grid works going forward because it is the fastest way to build out new energy sources. While it may, there's a great argument about how grid scale solar and grid scale wind are cheaper, but they're only cheaper if you're a utility. You and I as ratepayers are not going to be seeing the benefits of those costs anytime soon, certainly not for decades. But if I put solar on my roof or I buy into community solar, uh, I see those savings immediately. And so that's just one of the trends. And uh, hey, Gary Bella, you talk about some other ones that I think are, are really interesting and create great economic opportunities immediately because they're technology-based and they move more rapidly. And vehicle to grid is one of them and the virtual power plants is another. And there's a whole host of additional ones in that genre. But I think when you start to think about the power grid outside of just giant centralized power plants, giant centralized solar power plants and wind and even giant battery plants, and you start to realize that like computing, it started as mainframes in, in the last uh, 30 years, it's you know, while there's still a lot of mainframes around and actually we rely on them more than we want to admit as computer, computer users, they live in a cloud to us vast majority of computing that we use is on our desktops, on our watches, or in vast clouds of millions of machines in dark uh, rooms. And so that ability to take very small things and leverage them up into massive scale um, is what makes the promise of V2G and VPP so powerful because you're taking a very small thing, 
uh, in the context of the grid, you're taking a, a car and you're aggregating its capabilities to tens of thousands of times larger by bringing it together with other other cars or other house batteries in the virtual power plant scenario. And you create something as large as a giant power plant, but one that's incredibly green, one that's moving very swiftly. It's incredibly reconfigurable. They can meet market demands almost immediately in a way that no centralized giant plant can do. And so the companies that are working to unleash that opportunity, they're tying these together. And it's a complicated to do. You got to find someone who's willing to share their car or share their house battery. You got to form an economic agreement with them. And you got to have incredibly sophisticated real-time software that ties all that together. And that's where I think the software plays such an incredibly powerful role in the two examples you use. And I've been in software for 25 years and it was fast. And once the recognition that software is a player in the space starts to become broadly aware, you're going to have thousands of battle-tested software veterans entering the clean energy space. And that's really who I wrote my book for. Probably the primary audience is people that are like you guys that are dynamic global thinkers, but want to participate in a more active, engaged way than, than just, you know, voting is important and, and picking regulators is important, but to do more than that. And that's what I think, that's where I think the world's going and three of us and thousands, tens of thousands of others are going to start to play a much larger role than we've ever seen in the energy ecosystem in human history. We couldn't agree more and we're very excited to see how it unfolds. And we've been following sort of regional developments in this space, especially when it comes to distributed renewable energy generation. I just want to touch upon, you mentioned the fact that technology is what really sets this apart, solar, from the fossil fuels in the past. And it's that in technology improvements, which continue to drive down costs. Just wanted to touch upon how important do you think policy is and how much of a stumbling block could it be, especially when it comes to staying on the topic of distributed renewable generation, because so much of making that more viable is putting it back on the grid, aggregating it. And that is going to take grid improvements as well as policy decisions to influence that. So how, how much of a role do you think that'll play to either hinder or boost that in the coming years? Shayla, that's the, the trillion dollar question, literally, right? When it comes to policy and the big grid, right, there is no forward move, movement without policy. And so the American Congress right now is neck deep in debating what to do and can they use some tricks and procedures to get things through that the majority of Americans actually want, but the giant scale energy is so, uh, whether it's fossil fuels, oil and gas, or of course the grid have so much incumbency in my book. I talk about the fact that the electric utilities are arguably the largest lobbyists in the United States. They're, they're listed as the third largest federal lobbyist in there. And almost all the legislation occurs at the state level. And that's not disclosed almost anywhere. And so it's a very, it's not a large bet that they go from three, two to, to one is the largest lobbyist. By the way, I should add, they're also the smallest R&D of any industry in the United States. They're smaller than used car dealerships in terms of R&D. And the great news is it works. We pay affordable rates. Virtually every American has access to it. And it's relatively reliable if you don't live in Texas, Louisiana, or California. But it, it's, it's way overdue for a change. So the technology dimension is going to upend the entire business model that's been built by these giant corporations and, and policymakers when it comes to the small scale stuff. This is where it gets really interesting because when you get outside of this giant policy umbrella, that is the only way to move forward on big scale stuff, you can start to move more nimbly in the small scale world. So if you want to do virtual power plants, you're still interfacing with the large scale world. So you're still somewhat affected by the state by state policies, uh, the country by country policies for that. 
but you start to get to the commercial scale solar where you're generating your own power for your own office building or your house, all of a sudden you're largely free from policy. The only major policy that affects broadly is a net metering they call the United States or the beta tariffs they call it in Europe. And that's a bridge. And there's huge battles in the United States over net metering right now. 42 states have it. California is thinking about rescinding it, which has got just, you know, people with pickaxes and torches walking around up in arms. But when batteries, which are following the same cost curves as solar, catch up, it's, you don't, you don't care what that you pay to put it, you don't send any electricity back to the grid. So policy matters less and less and less as the cost of technology goes down. And for these great edge markets behind the meter markets, the only thing that will ultimately matter is punitive policies. Uh, I just got an email from somebody who's in New Mexico and they're putting a very punitive solar battery policy in place where if you, for every kilowatt, uh, I haven't validated this, but it's, it really struck me for every kilowatt of solar, you put it on your roof in a building or your home, you're going to pay $7 a month surcharge. Why? Who knows? And Alabama is usually known as the worst. I think it, it's a few dollars a kilowatt just because, and, and that's, that's definitely overreach and that kind of policy harms solar greatly. But listen, I mean, Australia is paying about a dollar a kilowatt to install solar with the same components. In the United States, it's $3 a kilowatt. The difference is regulations, uh, permitting, and policy. And there's uh, the Energy Secretary of the United States, Senator Secretary Granholm just announced something I've talked about a lot in my book called Solar App Plus, which is this sort of grassroots effort to streamline the regulations in the United States for solar permitting. And so I think we're going to see that, that, that gap between the United States, which is heavily complicated and regulated and that dollar in Australia, you're going to see that, that gap close. And, and then the final thing that happens, and this is what gets me so excited is that the price of solar and batteries become irresistible. And all the incumbent regulatory rats nests and, 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 and lobby, you, you just can't, I, I know I, I can't speak for Europe, but I can say in America where you're not going to get voted into office. If you say to your constituents that, by the way, you're going to pay two times as much as you should have to pay that they're paying in Europe and China, because we want to make sure that a bunch of incumbent monopoly protected industries are still very, very profitable. That's just not going to work for long. And education is the fastest way to get around it. That's, that's what free energy is all about. My book and my podcast. But Bill, let's elaborate on that a little bit more, right? So we read cover to cover the solar studies report that Department of Energy published just about three or four weeks ago. The utility scale solar is much cheaper than that distributed solar, right? Um, no. so it costs the person that whole uh. sun run and say, come here and please install a, a solar rooftop on my house. That person pays 2.5 times more than the cost of the utility scale solar. Right. Yeah, so you know, we, of efficiencies. I don't agree with you. Um, and I cover this myth in my book heavily. The rooftop solar competes in an entirely different market. It's like arguing what does it cost to grow a tomato in your garden versus what does it cost to grow a tomato at a giant farm or to buy it at a farmer's market or the grocery store? It's, it's yes, it's still a tomato, but I can't go buy it from a giant agricultural uh, company. So I'm going to pay a lot more for a tomato. I just don't have a choice. They're different markets. And, and so the question, and you'll see this as we start to roll the book out, solar is cheaper and the debate isn't where is it cheaper to build it? And I talk about this in the book, it's who gets the profitable benefit for it being cheaper. Is that, that cheaper costs go to the utility um, or does it go to consumers and communities that need it most that have less money? And so on an absolute basis, the numbers are correct. It is two and a half, three dollars kilowatt to put it on a rooftop, but 
you and I, as consumers of electricity that are paying a big rate or utility to deliver to us, if the utility is only paying a dollar, am I going to see that as a customer of them? Am I going to get an instantaneous reduction in my bill? Absolutely not. I may never see a reduction in it. Uh, part of it is because the utility has a lot of legacy, some costs in coal plants and nuclear plants that are expensive, and they probably wouldn't build them again if they could do it over again, but they're stuck with them. Partially because the cost of delivering that electricity from a distant location to my location, which is not included in that dollar figure you mentioned, that's entirely ignored. That can be double the cost very often. And if you, you know, read, if you also read that report, it's going to say that none of this, this dollar, this magical dollar solar works unless we build massive amounts of transmission infrastructure in the U.S. Well, that, that's not mentioned. It's a dollar plus that massive cost, which no one mentions. So there's so many studies that look at this in a holistic way. And by the time you take all the numbers together, it's actually, it gets a little religious. People argue because they're passionate, but it's, you know, it's, the prices are similar enough um, that the argument that utility scale solar and wind are cheaper just falls, falls out. And, and in the end, the only people that, that matters to them is you and I and a billion people that are paying electric utility bills. And the question is, what's cheaper for us? And I can absolutely guarantee you that it's cheaper for you to put it on your roof than it is to get what utility to put it in their giant field somewhere. A hundred percent. I completely agree, but it could be cheaper, right? Because there are some inefficiencies. Why does it cost so much more, right? For sun run to go roof by roof, uh, it, sh it shouldn't be to the tune of 2.5 times, right? right? So what do you think we're going to see? We're going to see bigger companies. So Sunrun will, will dominate the market and become much bigger or, or it's going to be the other way around. We're going to have more and more smaller um, companies, just like Sunrun, installing that solar battery systems across the U.S. I look at other industries. I look at the HVAC, air conditioning industry, right? And I think you're going to find it's going to be a combination of all of that. It's going to be some local companies that people love that are part of the community and help fund the local little league baseball team. And you're going to have giant multinationals that play it. And they're all the nice thing about local energy is that you can have all these companies intermingling to provide the best set of options for all of us as the end consumer. Whereas traditionally energy, oil and gas, the big grade electricity have been only the purview of giant corporations and heavy duty policy. So what happens now is that the three of us could start a company in, in Minnesota and we could compete with Sunrise. Or that's an option. You can't do that. We, we can't compete with Southern Company or Georgia Power or these companies, but we can compete with Sunrun. And therefore, the people, let's pick on Georgia where I live, they're going to have more options. And by the way, the number of market forces and technologies are driving that two and a half times number down. Remember, in Australia, they're paying a dollar for the same hardware, batteries, inverters. So it's unnatural that it's two and a half times higher in the United States. Solar App Plus, I think that's going to take a huge chunk out of it. Building integrated photovoltaics, one of my favorite topics, rather than build, having a perfectly fine roof built on day zero of your hull and then tearing it up and adding solar panels on it some day later, you just do all that at the same time. And uh, the cost dropped dramatically. The techniques and technologies of just getting it installed quickly, drones, the figuring out how to lay out the solar panels rather than someone climbing the roof, there's so much technology that's going to take that two and a half times down to one times. And so, and the one times, Utilities, they still have to pay for transmission. They still have to pay. And by the way, I want to be clear that you got 10 or 20 years, we still want utilities. We absolutely need the grid. Most people will take decades for everyone to be able to build their own. And even when they build their own, they're still going to want to trade the electricity with their neighbors. There's a very important role for the utilities, not just not the absolutely lockdown dominant role that no one else can compete with or participate in that they have today. And it's like that across the world. People in America are surprised to learn that 
whether it's China or Europe, it's uh, the utilities played this incredibly dominant role everywhere. Europe's actually leaning into more open competition with their en energy communities, which I talk about in the book, but it's, uh, it's totally going. And so utilities have this unique business position across all industries across the world. And it, 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 it doesn't serve us as the people who are using electricity, whether we're business people or residents. Well, it's a hopeful message if the speed and pace of technological change will just force the issue. So it, I'm looking forward to reading the book and, and finding out more. That's my assumption. Just switching tacks a little bit and going back to what you started out with. It's an issue that's close to our heart as well, is the importance and the role of solar in potentially leapfrogging traditional technologies and helping those that, as you mentioned, it's a big part of the poverty issue, a billion that are unpowered. And it leads to all kinds of issues like violence for women in, in remote areas, education, because you can't study without uh, light in the evenings. And so can you talk a little bit to us about, um, and all the discussions you had, what are the, how do you see that evolving? Do you see certain companies, certain countries very focused on that multilaterals? Do you see a big push in that direction and, and this kind of technology being available, being able to leapfrog traditional kind of electricity in the markets that need it most in, in the short term to medium term. This is such a favorite topic of mine because whether my house is powered by solar or not, isn't going to change my life, but the opportunities and particularly for women and children in parts of the world that have much lower income, people that are smallholder farmers, uh, people that live year to year or day to day sometimes. This clean energy revolution is going to change their lives. And I wanted to see it firsthand. So there's a big part of the book where I talk about going out to Africa and, and meeting with people. And I also went to Puerto Rico, which is obviously part of the U.S., but the poorest uh, part of the entire United States. And I sat down with people who uh, had survived the Hurricane Maria and, and how a solar battery school there had not just changed the school and the lives of these children, but it also changed the community. But, but in Africa. I sat down with half a dozen people who had just gotten solar battery systems, typically larger ones. And I just showed maybe a panel on the roof and three lights and a television. And uh, I remember the story of this guy, Francis, and he tells me, uh, so I'm sitting in his house and there's a translator and uh, he looks up at the roof and he shows me all these dark stains, kerosene. And he said, his kids had been living there with him. And, and he said, unrelated energy, he made a lot of bad decisions and his family didn't live with them anymore, but it, it broke his heart when his children were there because. Um, they only, they had, the kerosene was incredibly expensive, uh, and they would cough and their eyes would burn. And, uh, he said, look at the roof. And he says, now I want them to come back because I had the solar light and it powers the entire uh, room. And there's this, a small lantern they can use. And he said, but the favorite part of the story was that there was a, a woman that he had met who lived about a mile away from him and she would come to charge her phone. And, uh, and it was, he hadn't met her, but she was typically, she had to walk miles to get her phone charged because everybody has a phone that I met, uh, phone penetration is shockingly high. And she was coming to visit him to get his phone charged. And, and, uh, he said they were kind of getting along and starting to become friends and he hoped that it would go somewhere. And to me, that was the most human story about how these energy systems change lives. But in a more a demographic way, if you look at the people who are barely surviving, women end up playing a very different role than men and particularly societies that are, haven't changed as much in hundreds of years. And women collect the wood and women cook the food and women wash the clothes. And this requires a lot of walking. And so as you start to climb the energy ladder, women spend less time and the, the, the ability to have the phones charged and to have the light for the children that just gives particularly women hours back every day. And that allows them to play a very different role, often in an economic way for the family to participate. 
And then you get to some of the larger systems. And this is what everybody in Africa is talking about, which is they call them the productive use systems, where it's not just lighting, but you have something that can drive a machine, a juicer or a sewing machine, or even a small welder. And all of a sudden you have this explosion of entrepreneurism, small scale entrepreneurism. And that's completely enabled by, you know, a $500 solar system. And this changes everyone's lives. And it goes, my favorite one is in my book, there's a, one of my heroes is this guy uh, named Samir Ibrahim, who has a company called Sun Culture. And uh, you guys should totally talk to him. And he's got the largest uh, solar irrigation product. And so when I met him in Africa and we've become great friends and he, it, what I learned is that twice a year in Africa, it rains twice a year heavily. And, and if you're a smallholder farmer and your acre of land, that is your entirety of your income for the year. And if it rains too much, your crop's going to flood. And if it rains too little, which has happened a lot recently, your crops aren't going to grow. But one thing he tells me in my, my podcast, and, and I've met him many times since, that under Africa is the largest water table on any continent in the, in the world. And it's not that far below. And so if you can just dig a well, which is not the hard part. The hard part is getting the water out at scale to do irrigation. But he sells products for $500 that solar powered also have lights and all the other things, but it'll pull the water out into a, a hole, into some kind of container and then drip it out. And these farmers are now growing year round, respect, irrespective of weather. And they can actually grow crops that are much more dependent upon or are, are not as robust. So they can grow things like strawberries and other things that can't survive the difference in weather that the rains bring but they can grow higher value crops in, in the transformation. It just, they start climbing the economic ladder. So maybe a longer answer than you were looking for, but I'm so excited about what can be done there. And, and it's the same exact technologies that are powering my roof. It's not just similar, it's the identical components. And this is the whole thesis of my book, which is, I call it, it's not a kind of energy has been, the energy industry has been entirely defined by economies of scale. And for the next century, it's going to be defined by what I call economies of volume, mass manufacturing. We're going to be making all the energy in giant factories all over the world. And we're going to take one at a time and we're going to give it to someone who's living in West Africa and barely surviving. And we're going to take a 10 million of them. And we're going to power yeah, you know, on the outskirts of London and we're going to power the city. And I think that's, there's been nothing like that in the history of energy ever. And that's why 20 years from now, we're going to wonder why we're digging anything out of the earth other than rare materials, uh, you know, which are all going to be recyclable, by the way to power at one time. So that's another great thesis for all the things you guys are looking at is how do you maximize the, uh, the ability to get these incredible this supply chain in place with the minimal impact in the environment and the highest reusability. Yeah. I'll share some, some thoughts with you on that. We've been doing some, some great research. Bill, I feel like we could talk for hours. The research that you've done is, is incredible, but we're running out of time. So we always like to ask a, a last question to our guests, which is, we ask for some predictions. So by 2030, are we on track to power the last billion that don't have electricity with solar? Are we going to see all that vehicles to grid, the virtual power plants? How far are we going to go um, in the United States in particular with this distributed generation? Give us some predictions. I love the question. I can tell you that I'm confident by 2030 that solar and batteries will be the undisputed source of electricity. Everything else is going to come in a distant second. There's some geothermal breakthroughs that could change that equation. That, that's up in the air. I don't think we're going to be talking a lot about nuclear anymore uh, because batteries will make solar baseload ready. I don't think we're going to be talking nearly as much as about wind because solar is going to be that much cheaper, maybe offshore wind, 
but I think wind is going to wane and I think solar and batteries are going to be the dominant way to generate electricity. So the prices will continue to go down and that will have all kinds of secondary effects in the following decade. But I wish I was optimistic enough to say that it, the, in 2030, we're going to see the billion people with electricity. And one of the great stories in my book and, and is I, I sat down with the energy ministry of a big African nation, an energy minister. And I was talking to her about it and she said that the technology was moving so quickly in price and there were uh, even the large scale stuff at solar, they, they, as a government is ambitious and is essential, their ability to understand it, to predict it and to make policy around it was a struggle and everybody, it's the U S everybody, it wasn't just Africa, but the ability for those nations to act as aggressively as technology would allow is probably a stretch. So a decade. I think the answer will be clear, but I don't know that the solution will be complete. That's excellent. Well, we cannot wait to read the book. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's been absolutely fascinating and we hope to have you back. Thank you. I love talking about this stuff and I love your thesis. So thank you for having me. And if anybody's interested in learning about the book, they can just go to uh, freeenergy.com slash about the book or uh, book alerts and sign up to find out when it's coming out. Sounds great. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Climate Talk is produced by Spark Network. You can listen to Climate Talk on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your shows. To find out more about us, visit us at iClima.Earth. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. See you next week.